Matthew chapter 9 this morning. We're looking at verses 35 through 38. We read, Jesus went about all the cities, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted, and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. We see in the book of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7, Christ's great sermon on the mount. And in this discussion that he has with his disciples and with those who are listening, he teaches quite a bit on the topic of prayer. He teaches in chapter 6, verse 6, that the Father who is found in secret hears our requests that we make in secret and rewards us openly. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. He teaches the pattern by which we are to pray in chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. The pattern placing the priority on God, our Father, which art in heaven. Placing an emphasis on who God is. He is holy, hallowed be thy name. He is sovereign, thy kingdom come. And he is to be obeyed. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. This pattern demonstrates that God providentially cares for his people. Providing for our physical needs. Give us this day our daily bread. Providing the forgiveness for sins. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Providing protection from our fearsome enemy. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He teaches what may be the most important aspect of prayer. He gives the assurance in Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8, that prayer will be heard and answered. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth. He that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. And he gives this assurance to prayers. Oftentimes, we don't necessarily see answers in our prayers because we don't ask. Or we are not asking, and these commands that he gives carry on the idea that we are continuing to ask. We are continuing to seek. We are continuing to knock. Christ frequently taught his disciples that they must pray. He taught them how they should pray, but very seldom does he teach for what they should pray. 
And after completing the Sermon on the Mount in chapter seven, chapters 8 and 9, we see Christ going through the region, performing miracles, performing different healings, casting out demons, forgiving sins. Which leads us to our passage this morning in verse 35, which is one of the first times that Christ gives his disciples a specific command for what they are to pray. Oftentimes he left the what up to the Spirit's leading in their hearts. When we think about a good time, you know, we look around and we're coming off of the holidays where we, well, some of us before we had to go into quarantine, were able to spend time with family and friends. And we think about those good times. Thank God for those. Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, Paul writes, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy. Praise God for the good times. When we think about someone specifically, pray for that individual. Philippians 1, verse 8, Paul writes, God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. When we come up against difficult times in our lives, pray. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes that there was a thorn given to him in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet him lest he should be exalted above measure. For this thing he besought the Lord thrice that it might depart. In James 5 verse 13, as we read this morning, is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. When we have peace in our lives, praise God, James 5.13, the second part, is any merry, let him sing psalms. Are you not going through intense difficulty? Praise God for that. And the word for merry is just having a peace is what it means. We see this illustrated when Paul is on the ship heading to Rome and the ship is in a major storm and it's going to get shipwrecked and the Romans are concerned and they're freaking out and they're ready to abandon ship and Paul tells them, be of good cheer, calm down. God has promised me that no one will be hurt and those Romans took the advice of a prisoner and they saw his calmness. That's the same word for being merry in James 5.13. When we have our rest in God, praise him for it. When we hear that someone is sick, pray for healing. Is any among you sick? James 5.14. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. In our passage this morning, Matthew 9, Christ specifically directs us to remember one thing in our prayers. One thing that, if we are honest, we often neglect in our prayers. Prayer is not simply to be a selfish list of demands that we desire. Prayer is not a divine Christmas list. As the songwriter wrote, Lord, I need to talk to you. There's so much on my heart. So many burdens make it hard and I don't know where to start. I thank you for my family, your mercy and your love. Now on to more important things, I'll give my magic lamp a rub. 
Lord, you've been so good to me, how could I ask for more? But since you said to ask, I will, because what else is prayer for? The cattle on a thousand hills, they belong to you. I don't need any cows right now, but something else will do. So give me this. I want that. Bless me, Lord, I pray. Grant me what I think I need to make another day. Make me wealthy. Keep me healthy. Fill in what I miss on my never-ending shopping list. That's the idea that oftentimes we have for prayer. God is the one who is going to give us whatever our requests are. Prayer is not just that divine Christmas list. It's not a divine hostage negotiation. Okay, God, I'll serve you with my life. But first, I demand a large pepperoni pizza, a helicopter to get out of here, and a 10-minute head start. It's not a divine hostage negotiation. But rather, prayer is the power through which blessings can come to others. What greater blessing can a person receive than the pardon for sins? Christ tells his disciples that they are to pray the Lord of the harvest, that he send forth laborers into his harvest, praying that God would send laborers to do his work. might wonder why. Why would Jesus instruct us to pray for this specific request? Why does Jesus simply not do it? Why does God just not simply send people to do his work? Why are we instructed to pray for it? Would not one of Jesus's prayers for this be more effective than thousands of ours? Or we may wonder, would God not send laborers to the fields even if we don't ask? Isn't he going to do it anyway? So what's the purpose? And we see the reason why. Our Savior and Teacher, with his self-imposed human limitations, verse 36, he saw the multitudes. He stopped what he was doing. He took a genuine look at those who are around him, those who were coming to him, some of them primarily for the physical blessing, the physical healings, but he sees them and he has compassion on them. Why? Because they fainted. They were scattered like a sheep with no shepherds. And Christ gives us then this command. We are to pray the instructions are given because, first of all, the need is great. Christ saw humanity for what we are. We are shepherdless sheep. Where there is no leadership, where there is no shepherd, the sheep are going to do what they want as is demonstrated throughout the book of Judges. In Judges chapter 2, we'll be reading just a smattering of verses just to get this picture that you can see over and over again. In verse 14 of Judges 2, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. 
He delivered them into the hands of the spoilers that spoiled them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies round about so that they could now not any longer stand before their enemies. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. When the Lord raised them up judges, then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of the, their enemies all the days of the judge. For it repented the Lord because of their groanings by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers and following other gods to serve them and to bow down unto them. They ceased not from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. And in those days there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And we see this pattern throughout the book of Judges, where the Israelites, without leadership, without someone keeping on them to serve Jehovah, follow God, they go their own way, and God has to bring in an enemy to oppress them, to judge them, to punish them for their sins. And in that punishment, they then cry out to God for forgiveness, for relief from the punisher and God would raise a judge and that judge would redeem them from the punisher and for a while while that judge lived the Israelites would do what they're supposed to do and then the judge would die and then the Israelites go back into the same cycle as Solomon says in Proverbs 26 as the dog returneth to his vomit even so the fool returneth to his folly Prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Christ our Savior, the iniquity of us all. We are all sheep. Christ sees the multitudes, he sees the crowds, and he doesn't see people who are just there to get healed. He doesn't just see people who may be there for a free meal. He sees people who are hurting. He sees people who have no guidance. He sees a bunch of sheeple. We're all sheeple. And Christ knew their ultimate need not found in meeting their physical needs or meeting their mental needs, but their ultimate need was spiritual. So we looked at last week in John chapter 4, Pastor Betry preached on this. The harvest was ready. Christ saw this. John 4.35, Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. Christ saw the need, and the need is great. If you're in the men's Sunday school class, you've heard these statistics already, so you can ignore this part. But back in 2018, seems like a lifetime ago now, Barna Group did a poll, and they found that almost 50% of believers, 50% of Christians, think that most non-Christians have no interest at all in hearing about Jesus. What a sad state of affairs of the church, when those whom God has called to be lights to the darkness have the mindset of, they don't care anyway, why should I bother? 
Lifeway Research did a survey around the same time and found a rather startling poll, I think. 78% of the unchurched, 78% of unbelievers said that they would listen to someone who shared what they believed about Christianity. The need is great. Christ saw the multitudes and he had compassion, and yet in modern America Christianity, the majority mindset is, the people out there don't care. They don't want to hear, so why bother? And yet the people that are out there, those who are not Christians, those who are not in a church, the overwhelming majority are saying, I'd be willing to listen. I would be willing to hear if someone would be willing to tell me. People are ready to hear the truth. They want the truth. You know, if you've watched any media news outlets the last several years, it's hard to know what to believe. And yet as believers, we have the truth. Christ tells us to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into his harvest. The instructions are given because the need is great. But oftentimes the instructions are given because I believe, secondly, there is a neglect among God's people. We miss perhaps the compassion that Christ had. He saw the multitudes and he was moved with compassion on them. Oftentimes, I believe that we have the mentality demonstrated by King Hezekiah. If you think back on the story in 2 Kings, Hezekiah is sick. He's going to die. The prophet Isaiah comes to him and he says, Isaiah, would you please ask God to heal me? And Hezekiah gets healed. And as he's healed, he then celebrates. And he has these ambassadors from this little nation that's starting to come onto the world scene called Babylon. And he has these ambassadors from Babylon and he shows them all of the gold in the temple. He shows them the wealth of the country and they go their way because they were just satisfied to see the gold. And Isaiah comes and tells Hezekiah, by the way, those people that you just were bragging about all of your riches... They're going to come back, and they're going to take them all. They're going to take your descendants captive. And in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 19, Hezekiah said unto Isaiah, Good is the word of the Lord that thou hast spoken. Is it not good if peace and truth be in my days? The idea and the attitude of, Oh man, Isaiah, thanks for sharing God's word with me. Thanks for challenging me with that. All I really heard is while I'm alive, things are going to be good. So that's all that matters. It doesn't matter what's going to happen down the line. As long as it's good while I'm in charge, that's okay. And we neglect, I believe, the compassion that Christ had. We do not see people the way Christ saw people. And even in Sunday school this morning, we looked at the fact of what sin is. 
and how God is going to judge for our sin. In Jude, verses 22 and 23, Jude writes of some having compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. And we go through our lives and we see our neighbors, we see co-workers, we see people in the store as we go about our normal daily lives, and we don't see them the way that Christ saw them. We miss out and we don't recognize that these are individuals who, because of their sin, are going to spend eternity under the righteous wrath of God. Because I'm saved. I'm good. My eternal destination is secure. But the author of Jude tells us we're to have compassion. We're to see those individuals for where they truly are. We are to take some of them, even save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. And the idea is snatching them. I have no doubt that if as we were to go out and leave this afternoon or morning, whenever we get out of here. If you were to see one of my precious children not listening to their mother and start to run into the parking lot, and you see a car coming, I have no doubt that you would grab them by the arm and yank them to safety. Because we don't want to see, and now he's looking at me like he would never do anything like that, we wouldn't want to see Elijah get hurt. And that's the same mentality that we are to have with those who are unsaved recognizing that they are on their way to eternal damnation. And we are to snatch them from the fire. We neglect the compassion. If I pray for this, does it really matter? Is God really going to answer? We don't think that our prayers would make a difference. Because God surely has more important things to be concerned about than me, right? I mean, there's this pandemic circling the world. People are dying all around. Why would God want to listen to a prayer that I pray to send laborers to those people who are dying without Christ? Oh, wait, yeah, that makes sense. As we saw in James chapter 5, verse 17, and we'll talk more about Elijah this evening. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. A normal Joe, so to speak. There wasn't anything special about him. He didn't have any noble birth. He didn't have any great heritage. He was a normal person. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. Why? Because God cared about a normal person by the name of Elijah who was praying, and we'll look at it this evening, God's word back to God. And that's exactly what Christ is commanding us and instructing us to do. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers. Why? Because the harvest is plentiful. On September 23rd, 1857 was 12 o'clock noon. 
A tall, middle-aged man climbed to the third story of an old church building in the heart of New York City, entered into an empty room, pulled out his pocket watch, and sat down to wait. The sign outside the door read, Prayer meeting from 12 to 1. Stop as your time permits. It appeared that no one had the time. That man's name was Jeremiah Lanfear. Just a merchant. Just a common Joe. He waited 20 minutes. Then one man came in and then another till there were six. After a few moments of prayer, the meeting was dismissed. The next week, 20 came to his prayer meeting. The following Wednesday, 40 showed up. Lanfear decided to make the meeting a daily event in a large room. That next week on Wednesday, the nation was staggered by the worst financial panic in her young history. Banks closed, men were out of work, families went hungry. That noon hour prayer meeting exploded, figuratively. People showed up. In a short time, the meeting took the whole building. Crowds of over a thousand would show up at noon to pray. On November 5th, 1857, a New York paper carried the story of a revival in Ontario, Canada, where between three and four hundred were converted in a few days. Charles Finney was preaching in Boston. Prayer meetings were held. Over 150 Massachusetts towns were moved with revival with over 5,000 conversions before the end of March. That revival in 1857 to 1858 was the last great national revival that America had. And it started because one man. Jeremiah Lanfear decided that he was going to pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his field. But we see the blessing. The blessing comes with the answer to prayer. Christ commands us to pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send laborers into his field. The first blessing that this specific prayer will bring is a personal desire for an increase in what we would say are the full-time Christian workers. There are churches around the state, churches around the country, churches around the world seeking someone to shepherd them. There are untold millions who have never heard the name of Jesus. There are countless pastors desiring to be able to hand the pulpit over to the next generation with no one to take the torch. And we are to ask God to send laborers to the harvest. And when we ask God to send laborers to specific locations, we become specifically and personally involved. When we intentionally pray for the salvation of our neighbors, God sent someone to meet my neighbor and send someone to share the gospel with my neighbor as we pray for that, pretty soon the Lord is going to work in the heart of a laborer to go to my neighbor and reach them with the good news of the gospel. The first blessing is found in that personal desire. The second blessing is found in personal application. Don't 
obey this command. Don't pray this prayer if you are not willing to allow God to use you to answer that laborer's call. Several summers ago, I worked at Camp Joy. Three summers. The first two summers as a counselor. The, second summer, or the third summer, I figured would be easier. I'd do program staff. Yeah. And that summer, I had decided that, Lord, I'm going to... I, I need to work on this area in my life. And that first week, I was praying that the Lord would help me to grow and work on my patience. Never pray for something you're not willing for the Lord to answer. Natalie, were you there that summer? All right, so we have a fact checker in the audience. I was praying that the Lord would work on patience in my life. So during training week, Brother Scott Hatchett had the wonderful idea that the two program guys who had been there for three summers didn't need to go through the training week like normal. No, instead, they can go into that catacomb area, the maze, and put that maze back together panel by panel. And if you know anything about me, power tools should be kept away from me. We do not get along. And so for the first week and a half and a couple of days until they decided to put somebody who knew how to use power tools on that project, every waking hour that was not in a chapel message or eating, Ryan and I were in that maze trying to figure out the blueprints and put it together. God, help me with patience. Okay, here's a task. No, no, no. Give me patience a different way. Grant me patience now. God, pray, I pray that you would send laborers into the harvest. And when we recognize the needs of those around us, and when we ask God to send laborers to the harvest, we will not be able to sit idly by doing nothing. As we pray the Lord to send laborers, he may send you. Whew, I am 86 years old. I am retired. He is not going to send me to Africa. No, he might not, but he might send you to your next door neighbor who is just as much a pagan as some tribesmen in Africa, who needs the gospel just as much. Oh, I'm just a teenager. God can't use me yet. Yes, he can. Because you have friends that you can influence that other people can't. The third blessing is found simply in the answer to prayer. God, send laborers to the harvest. When we pray God's promises, pray his word back to him, he will answer. And as we pray that God would send laborers into his field, he will are we praying that the Lord would send laborers to build this local assembly here in Frankfort, Illinois, Heritage Baptist Church? Are we praying that the Lord would send laborers into the Frankfort community and the surrounding towns? Because if we are, guess what? He will. And just as our theme for this year that Pastor spoke about last week, those laborers that he's going to send are sitting in these seats.
as we pray that God would send laborers to the harvest his fields, the harvest is ready. He will do the work in our hearts and in our lives to go and share the gospel, not necessarily with people across the country, but people across the street, with our neighbors. Recognizing Psalm 127.1, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. So this morning, do we recognize the need around us? As we were challenged with last week, do we recognize that the harvest is plenteous and the laborers are few? Are we lifting our eyes and looking to the fields? Are we following the teaching of our Lord in this manner? Are we praying that he would then send laborers into his field? And are we willing to allow ourselves to be used by him to labor in the harvest in Frankfurt and the surrounding areas? Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. The harvest is plenteous. The laborers are few. So let us pray that the Lord of the harvest will send laborers into the harvest. Father, we thank you for the wonderful truth of the gospel that although we are sinners we are our wills are bent against yours we deserve your judgment you sent your son to die on the cross to pay that penalty lord as we think of those around us we think of our neighbors we think of unsaved family members lord would you send laborers into your harvest field Would you do the work in the hearts of your people, even here, that you would open our eyes, that we would see that the fields are white unto harvest, that you would provide opportunities to share the good news of your word, having compassion on some and some snatching out of the fire. We ask these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.